All right, let's do this. Aspect and tense in New Testament Greek. Research of verbal aspect and tense has seen the most intense debate, scholarly engagement, and genuine advances in the study of Greek in the past 30 years. While it's virtually impossible to study biblical Greek today without some awareness of the discussions and debates surrounding aspect and tense, the issues are still poorly understood. The linguistic complexities, jargon, language, and fierce differences among scholars have led many to remain unsure about what the real issues are, how to assess them, and much less how to apply any positive insights that have arisen. This paper will offer a summary of some of the recent scholarship on Greek aspect and tense before turning briefly to consider its relevance for exegesis. It's impossible to do justice to any of the topics addressed here given our time constraints, but it's hoped that this offering will provide a framework of understanding so that further detail may be pursued with profit. So first, what is aspect? In grammatical studies, the English word aspect derives from the French word aspect, (laughs) which means point of view or viewpoint. While different definitions of aspect exist within grammatical and linguistic studies, this original meaning is most widespread in the study of Greek. Aspect refers to viewpoint. But what viewpoint are we talking about? Well, we are concerned with the way that Greek verbs present actions and states from a certain point of view. Every verbal process, such as an activity, action, or state, may be presented from one perspective or another, depending on one's point of view. A verb will be used to view an action either from outside the action or from inside the action. And as Bust Fanning has described it, Quote, the action can be viewed from a reference point within the action without reference to the beginning or end point of the action, but with a focus instead on its internal structure or makeup. Or the action can be viewed from a vantage point outside the action with focus on the whole from beginning to end, but without reference to its internal structure. The external viewpoint outside the action is known as perfective aspect, The internal viewpoint inside the action is known as imperfective aspect. Perfective aspect views an action as a whole and is often used to present an action in summary form. Imperfective aspect views an action from within it and is often used to present an action as unfolding or in progress. An important illustration, and if you know anything about aspect, of course you know this illustration, is often used to get at the difference between perfective and imperfective aspects. Imagine a reporter as she reports on a street parade. I changed it. I made it a her. (laughs) If she were to view the street parade from a helicopter, she would see the parade as a whole. She will describe the parade in a general summarizing way because she sees the whole thing. This viewpoint represents perfective aspect. But if that same reporter views the same parade from the street rather than from the helicopter, her view of the parade will be different. From the street level, she will view the parade up close as it unfolds before her. Rather than viewing the parade as a whole from the helicopter, it is now seen from within. This viewpoint represents imperfective aspect. All Greek scholars agree that the aorist is perfective in aspect, while the present and imperfect are imperfective in aspect. This means that the aorist is used to convey an action as a whole, often in summary fashion, 
while the present and imperfect convey an action as unfolding, often in progress or as a state. But debate remains concerning perfect, pluperfect, and future verbs. Now, one attempt to answer the question above, namely what distinguishes between two Greek past tenses, has been the category of aktionsat. This term literally means type of action and refers to the ways that actions can unfold, the kinds of action. Some actions are punctilia, some iterative, some ingressive, and so forth. A punctilia action is something that happens in an instant, like a punch or a kick. An iterative action is something that is repeated over and over, like breathing. An ingressive action is one that is just beginning to unfold, like waking up, and now would be a good time for that if you haven't done it already. There was once much confusion between aktionsart and aspect, and sometimes those terms could be used interchangeably, but it is best to keep a clear distinction between them. While aktionsart refers to a kind of action, how the action happens, aspect refers to viewpoint, how the action is viewed. There's a relationship between those two things, but we'll return to that later. Illustration. Imagine that I told you that last night I cooked dinner. Well, you know it was a lie for starters, but let's just say. What actually happened as I prepared the meal? Well, first, it took some time, about an hour, in fact. Second, cooking dinner actually involves several smaller actions, such as watching, washing the potatoes and browning the mitts. But if I just say to you, I cooked dinner, none of those details are conveyed. The whole thing is simply summarized. This is an illustration of perfective aspect, the view of the whole from the helicopter. Actionsat, on the other hand, refers to what actually happened rather than how it is viewed and presented. Okay, so having set up some basic definitions, it's useful to understand how and why this discussion about aspect has evolved. Long before modern aspect discussions, 19th century comparative philologists such as Georg Curtius discuss different kinds of actions represented by Greek verbs, distinguishing between, for example, durative and quickly passing actions. His label, Zeitart, type of time, paved the way for other scholars to develop the concept of aktionsart, type of action. From 1890 to 1910, they developed a productive period in which several scholars explored aspect and aktionsart in Greek and other Indo-European languages, though these terms and Zeitart sometimes became confused and conflated. By the mid-1920s, however, these terms became more settled. Aktionsart would then refer to how an action actually occurs, influenced strongly by lexical considerations. Aspect was regarded as indicating the viewpoint through which an action is conveyed. And that distinction is more or less the standard today within Greek studies, though some scholars and grammars still refer to aspect as though it is actually aktionsat. Through the middle of the 20th century, some important contributions were made by scholars such as Holt and Ruperes, uh, but the main scholar who would exert most influence over modern discussions was K.L. Mackay, Kenneth Mackay, a fellow Australian. Working primarily within classical Greek and later the Greek of the New Testament, Mackay wrote about aspect from 1965 through to 1994. He argued that there were three or possibly four aspects in ancient Greek uh, with present and imperfect tense forms 
expressing imperfective aspect and the aorist expressing perfective aspect, though he called it aoristic aspect. The perfect and pluperfect were regarded as stative in aspect. He called this perfect aspect, not to be confused with perfective aspect. While the future represented a kind of quasi-fourth aspect. Over the years, Mackay increasingly questioned the role of time in the Greek verb, eventually concluding that Greek verbs, including those in the indicative mood, did not indicate temporal relationships directly, but that these resulted from aspectual meaning within context. Stan Porter built on the work of Mackay and others, publishing his doctorate on Greek verbal aspect in 1989. Using linguistic principles derived mostly from systemic functional linguistics, Porter was the first to apply a rigorous linguistic approach to the question of Greek aspect. As with Mackay, Porter argued that Greek verbs were not tense-based, but aspectual at their core. Temporal reference was created through the interplay between aspect, lexeme, and context. Porter also argued for three aspects in Greek, perfective, imperfective, and stative. Bust Fanning published his doctorate on Greek verbal aspects shortly after Porter in 1990. Fanning, like Porter and Mackay, affirmed the central importance of aspect for the Greek verbal system, but unlike them, retained a place for tense as well. When a particular tense form does not, however, express its expected time reference, this is largely because its aspect has kind of overpowered it. Also, in contrast to Porter and Mackay, Fanning argued for two aspects, not three, rejecting stative aspect. Porter and Fanning became the two main protagonists of the modern era of Greek aspect studies, with following contributors positioning themselves in relation to them both, either positively or negatively. Mari Broman Olsen followed Fanning in recognizing only two aspects, and partially followed Fanning and Porter with respect to tense, arguing for some tense forms as having consistent temporal reference and others not. Rodney Decker followed Porter in the number of aspects and by rejecting the notion of tense in the indicative mood. Trevor Evans' work on the verbal syntax of the Greek Pentateuch led him to retain the notion of tense in the indicative mood and affirm only two aspects. Instead of stative aspect, Evans suggested that the Greek perfect is in fact imperfective in aspect. As Evans' student, my own work follows him on that issue, arguing for the imperfective aspect of the Greek perfect and blue perfect, while rejecting stative aspect. With the exception of the future indicative, I have argued against the notion of tense in Greek indicative verbs, contra my supervisor, Evans, preferring a spatial system of remoteness and proximity that works in concert with aspect to produce predictable actionsad functions and temporal reference. Following Porter most closely with David Mathewson working on aspect in Revelation, uh, Wally Serafesi working on aspect and the synoptic problem, and Doug Huffman working on aspect and prohibitions in the Greek New Testament. Following the so-called perfect storm, a, date, a, date, a debate uh, between Porter Fanning and me on the aspectual, it wasn't really a date, it was on a date, I suppose, in 2013, uh, and me on the aspectual nature of the Greek perfect at the 2013 SBL conference, a group of scholars led by Steve Rungi, addressed various questions regarding the Greek verbal system at a conference in Cambridge in 2015. This led to the publication of the Greek Verb Revisited, a collection of essays addressing tense, aspect, mood, and voice in the Greek verbal system. While not all contributors were completely uniform, the volume taken as a whole argued for tense within the indicative mood and two aspects, 
rejecting stative aspect but arguing for combinative aspect for the perfect and pluperfect forms. These forms represent a combination of perfective and imperfective aspects that allows the perfect to retain a more or less traditional expression of perfective or past action with an imperfective or present resulting state. Before exploring various areas of debate concerning verbal aspect in Greek, it's worth noting the considerable breadth of agreement among Greek scholars. First, all scholars agree of the central significance of aspect for the Greek language. Aspect is not some kind of passing fad, as one of my students called it once, for understanding Greek. It is here to stay and represents a far superior approach to the verbal system than previous approaches. Second, we are not talking about aspect or tense when we discuss verbal aspect. Those categories are not in competition as those students must choose whether they will accept aspect or tense as the correct way to understand Greek verbs. Everyone agrees about the importance of aspect. Yes, the question of tense is one area of ongoing debate, but it is not aspect or tense. It is yes to aspect and maybe to tense, depending on who you ask. Third, all agree that aspect is essential for exegesis and translation of Greek text. Grasping what aspect is and why it matters is not negotiable for Greek New Testament studies. And anyone who wants to handle the text in a responsible way must grapple with, understand, and apply the insights gleaned from aspect studies. Fourth, while various definitions of aspect exist within the wider linguistic world, Greek aspect studies has more or less kept in line with the original understanding of aspect, which is viewpoint. Another major understanding of aspect originates with Bernard Comrie in 1976, which has to do with internal temporal relationships, <clears throat> but this approach has rightly been critiqued for resorting to temporal understandings of a spatial concept. Since aspect is about viewpoint, it is fundamentally a spatial concept, viewing activities and actions either internally or externally. Regardless of your view about tense, we're talking about the definition of aspect itself. It's a spatial idea. Fifth, all scholars agree that Greek exhibits at least two aspects, perfective and imperfective. The Greek aorist is perfective in aspect, while present and imperfect tense forms are imperfective in aspect. But the other tense forms are debated, so it is to that debate we now turn. The most significant area of disagreement concerns the number of aspects within the Greek verbal system. There are at least two, perfective and imperfective. But is there a third, known as stative aspect? As with much of the discussion, this particular debate can be defined with respect to Porter and Fanning. Porter, following Mackay and others, endorses this third state of aspect as a way of explaining perfect and pluperfect meaning and function. The chief advantages of this view is that it does account for the apparent stativity of much perfect and pluperfect usage. It also may account for the different verbal stem of these forms as compared to aorist and present stems. Several scholars have followed Porter on this issue, such as Decker, Mathewson, and Hoffman. On the other hand, Fanning has argued against stative aspect, claiming that it is out of step with wider linguistic understanding. 
and that stativity is properly understood as an action side value rather than an aspect. I agree with Fanning on this point and have made my own arguments against state of aspect. But while Fanning argues that the Greek perfect represents a combination of perfective aspect, state of action side, and present tense, I argue that it is imperfective in aspect. And at the 2013 SBL perfect storm debate, Porter, Fanning, and I debated these issues at length. The aspect of the future tense form is also contested. Some, such as Porter, argue that the future is unaspectual. Some, such as I, argue that it is perfective in aspect. And others, such as Fanning, regard the future as a combination of either uh, perfective or imperfective aspects. But perhaps the most infamous area of debate concerns the place of temporality and tense in the Greek verbal system. As mentioned above, this question is not about whether Greek has an aspectual or tense-based verbal system. All agree it is a primarily aspectual system. But not all agree as to the place of tense alongside aspect. Does it exist alongside aspect and as subordinate to it, or does it not exist? With that, we turn now to the next section addressing tense. What is tense? What do we mean when we refer to tense? When we discuss tense, we are not referring to verbal morphology. This can be confusing because we are often referring to verbs as tenses. The present tense, the past tense, the future tense, and so forth. With those labels, tense really refers to the morphological forms of present, past, and future. But we are not talking about verbal morphology here. Instead, we are talking about one facet of verbal meaning or verbal function. Second, as we discuss tense, we are not referring simply to temporal reference. Temporal reference can occur in a number of ways. Words such as now, later, today, tomorrow can all help to establish temporal reference. These are deictic markers that indicate the time frame. Tense, however, is a very specific way of referring to time. It concerns the ways in which verbs indicate time, specifically the time at which verbal actions take place. So the present tense indicates that an action is to be understood as occurring at the time of speaking or writing. The past tense indicates that an action is to be understood as occurring before the time of speaking or writing. Third, tense always refers to time in relation to something else, usually the time of speaking or writing. So if an action is conveyed with a present tense, it does not mean that it is happening now, like right now, perhaps 2,000 years after it was written about. The action is only present in its temporal reference with respect to the author's or speaker's portrayal of the event, not in relation to actual reality. Talking about time can be confusing in that way. There really is no such thing as absolute time in language, only relative time. For example, a speaker may use the future tense to say that they will travel tomorrow, but if that tomorrow was 2,000 years ago, in what sense is the travel in the future? It was only in the future in the past. Now it is all actually in the past. But the future, the future tense still points to a future event, but only from the perspective of the speaker at the time. So the question here is, does the Greek verbal system express tense? In other words, when we encounter a Greek present verb form, does it indicate present temporal reference, or is its temporal reference flexible? When we encounter an aorist, will it necessarily refer to the past? 
While Georg Curtius in the 19th century laid the groundwork for Greek aspect studies, he also made significant advances in understanding tense in the Greek verbal system. The most significant advance was to demonstrate that tense does not exist outside the indicative mood. Prior to Curtius, the common assumption had been that all the Greek moods conveyed tense, the subjunctive, imperative, optative, as well as participles and infinitives. This assumption was derived from Latin, which conveys tense across all its moods, and Latin was the lens through which Greek and other languages were studied after the Renaissance period. Curtius's claim that tense only existed within the indicative mood in Greek was a radical suggestion at the time, but is now the standard understanding. No one today considers tense to be a factor within non-indicative Greek verbs. But what about the indicative mood? For some scholars, Curtius did not go far enough. Not only does tense not play a role within non-indicative moods, but it does not play a role in the indicative mood either. The first scholar to move in this direction in our discussion was Mackay, who as early as 1965 asserted that tense was less of a factor in the Greek verbal system than aspect. His assertions about tense in the indicative mood became progressively stronger to the point at which in 1994 he denied that tense existed at all in the indicative mood. But before Mackay had uh, evolved fully to this point, Porter had already argued that point in 1989. Porter argued that the Greek indicative mood conveyed aspect only, without tense, and any verb's temporal reference came about through the combination of aspect and context. In other words, aorist indicatives would often refer to past events because of the nature of perfective aspect, which is particularly apt for conveying completed past actions, and because aorists were often used in contexts that were already past referring, such as narratives that are by nature set in the past. An explanation of indicative verbs that relied on aspect only and not tense would then account for the high number of exceptions to the rule, presents that refer to the past, aorists that refer to the present, perfects that do not refer to, the, to a past action, and so forth. Fanning, on the other hand, in line with typical approaches to the Greek verb since uh, Curtius, argued that tense remained a feature of the indicative mood alongside aspect. Since aspect was the dominant category, it could sort of overpower tense so that certain verb forms would not always indicate the temporal reference they were supposed to. Fanning was also sensitive to the features of certain lexemes, acknowledging that some verbal lexemes bucked their tenses temporal reference for reasons related to their diachronic development through the evolution of the Greek language. And so the first infamous clash between these two new Greek aspect scholars was focused on tense in the indicative mood. And it was tense. Both agreed that aspect was primary, but Fanning maintained aspect alongside aspe uh, tense alongside aspect while Porter rejected tense. Porter's position was, of course, the controversial one, though it ought not to have been as controversial as it was. Curtius had done the same thing with all the other moods 120 years earlier, and Mackay had been chipping away at tense in the, indic in the indicative mood for a couple of decades already. Moreover, there are other languages that do not encode tense in their verbal system at all. While some students and scholars gravitated to the radically linguistic approach of Porter, others found Fanning's work more in line with the trajectories of previous Greek studies. 
Most of the academic contributors following Porter and Fanning would position themselves once again in relation to these two on the question of tense. Olson mediated between the two, accepting tense for some indicative forms and rejecting it for others. Decker followed Porter, Evans followed Fanning, I followed Porter with modifications, Matthewson, Serafesi and Huffman followed Porter, Rungi and his collaborators followed Fanning. While tense is not the most important question to consider, in my opinion, it nevertheless remains a fraught one. There are really two issues to evaluate. First is the obvious fact that many Greek verbs do not conform to their expected temporal reference. The statistics are quite overwhelming for some tense forms, such as the so-called present indicative, which only refers to the present about 70% of the time. The aorist, Greek's default past tense, refers to the present or future about 15% of the time. The Greek perfect, which is supposed to refer to a past action with present consequences, does this less than half the time. In fact, the only Greek tense form that consistently refers to the time it's supposed to is the future. The second issue to evaluate, however, is why the Greek indicative tense forms do, nevertheless, have default temporal expressions. In other words, before we jettison tense altogether, we must ask why then does the aorist refer to the past 85% of the time? Why does the present refer to the present 70% of the time? Any conception of the inner workings of the Greek tense forms must account for these patterns not only account for the exceptions. So an important question to ask is, can a non-tense understanding of Greek verbs account for the ways in which verbs are actually used? In order to address these questions about tense, it's necessary to introduce the important linguistic distinction between semantics and pragmatics. While these terms can mean different things in various linguistic discussions, the most common way they've been used in Greek verbal studies is as follows. Semantic values are features that are encoded at the morphological level. That is, a semantic feature of the aorist tense form will be something that every aorist has in common because the aorist form or morphology conveys that feature. Pragmatic values, on the other hand, refer to the variable functions of morphological forms. When a verb is used in relation to different lexemes and the vicissitudes of context, it performs different functions. That is, any aorist is able to be used in a variety of ways depending on the other elements of language that interact with it. Thus, the distinction between semantics and pragmatics can be summarized as the difference between form and function. What does a form mean and what can a form do? The two things are, of course, closely related, and sometimes it's not possible to to tease them apart clearly. Nevertheless, the distinction between semantics and pragmatics remains highly useful and plays directly into the question of tense in the Greek indicative mood. As for aspect, in aktionsat, it is generally agreed that aspect is a semantic value, while aktionsat is a pragmatic category. The Greek aorist, for example, is perfective in aspect down to its morphology, down to its boots. It semantically encodes perfective aspect. But the aorist is capable of several different functions in context or different kinds of action. That is, action sartan. An aorist may function as punctilia or iterative or ingressive depending on the lexeme 
and the context. But every aspect, regardless of its function, will always express perfective aspect. Aspect is semantic, punctilia function is pragmatic. But what about tense? The question about tense in the Greek indicative mood comes down to the distinction between semantics and pragmatics. If that theoretical distinction is held, we must ask if temporal expression is semantically encoded in indicative moods or if it is a pragmatic expression of verbs in context. For those who deny the existence of tense in the Greek indicative mood, it is chiefly because temporal reference is not a semantic value of the morphological form. This is why so many verbs behave in ways that are contrary to their supposed tense. Temporal reference is not semantic and it is therefore flexible to some degree. Temporal reference, rather, is regarded a pragmatic feature of verbs in context. For others, however, temporal reference is regarded as semantic in spite of the many exceptions to the rule. They are therefore comfortable with the claim that tense exists alongside aspect in the indicative mood because both are regarded as semantic features of verbal morphology. But how then do they account for the many exceptions to the rule? In Fanning's case, for example, he does not regard the distinction between semantics and pragmatics to be a tight one. There's some blurring at the edges between semantics and pragmatics, or at least semantic values can be sort of rubbed out in certain contexts. This means for Fanning that while tense is a semantic value of Greek indicative verbs, in certain instances a verb semantic temporal reference may be overpowered by other factors such as aspect. Thus, in the end, one's position on tense in the Greek indicative mood largely depends on the methodological presuppositions one holds. If a clear distinction between semantics and pragmatics is held, it is almost inevitable that temporal reference will not be accepted as semantic. If the distinction is less tightly held, there is room to accept temporal reference as semantic without exceptions to the rule carrying much weight. The debate about tense, therefore, is actually a debate about linguistic methodology. However, there is a third position that sits somewhere between the aspect only and aspect plus tense positions. And this involves spatial metaphors that stand alongside aspect as semantic values. In our literature, the concept of remoteness was first suggested by Mackay, just in a footnote, but it's there in 1965 and was later developed further by Porter. This was posited as an alternative understanding of the meaning of the Greek augment and as a way to distinguish tense forms that share the same aspect, such as present and imperfect. The Greek augment has long been regarded an indicator of past temporal reference, adorning the Greek aorist, imperfect, and pluperfect indicative tense forms. Though there are several examples of aorists dropping their augment while still referring to the past, in Homeric poetry, for example, this was most likely for purposes of style and meter. But the augment could indicate the sp spatial metaphor of remoteness rather than past temporal reference. While it is perhaps a little difficult for modern English speakers to wrap their minds around the concept of remoteness, it is actually quite a natural concept, especially for ancient cultures. Actions are perceived as being distant from the speaker. They are remote compared to actions that are nearer. We might normally think of actions today in the past 
as opposed to the present, but this is a very temporal way to conceive of actions, while many ancient cultures leaned towards more spatial ways of thinking. In truth, our conceptions of time are overlaid on spatial realities. A day is measured by the rotation of the earth on its axis, a month by the orbit of the moon around the earth, and a year by the orbit of the earth around the sun. These are spatial realities that determine our major divisions of time, a day, a month, a year. But how we break up a day into 24 hours is arbitrary. Breaking up uh, an hour into 60 minutes is arbitrary. Having a seven-day week is arbitrary. Well, except that seven-day week exists for biblical reasons. But apart from that, it's arbitrary. And there is nothing special about 10 years constituting a decade or 100 years constituting a century. The point is that our major measurements of time are determined by physical, spatial realities. And our minor measurements of time are arbitrary divisions within those larger measurements. Moreover, as cognitive linguists have demonstrated, it is naturally human to think first in spatial categories before developing more abstract notions such as time. This is easily observed in the development of infants. Long before they understand what time is, they are already navigating their worlds through spatial reasoning. It's also observed culturally. Human cultures tend to be much more spatially oriented early in their development before abstract notions such as time become more prevalent. Thus, there is a natural relationship between space and time. And space is actually the most natural of the two. The concept of remoteness fits into this broader sense in which people may regard their world more spatially than we do today. And the beauty of remoteness is that it does not nullify the possibility of past temporal reference. Instead, past time is simply one expression of remoteness. This means that if, say, the Greek aorist is regarded as perfective in aspect and spatially remote... At the, at the semantic level, this will account for the 85% of aorists that refer to the past, since past time is a temporal expression of remoteness. But it will also account for the 15% of aorists that do not express past temporal reference, since there are other ways in which remoteness may function. Logical remoteness, for example. In other words, the spatial value of remoteness is more easily regarded a semantic feature of the aorist than past temporal reference, since it does not yield any exceptions. I've developed the concept of spatial metaphors uh, following Porter and Mackay to include the opposite of remoteness, namely proximity. While the aorist and imperfect indicatives convey remoteness, the present tense conveys proximity. This explains why the majority of present indicatives express present temporal reference which is a natural expression of the spatial value of proximity. And proximity is also able to explain the uses of the present indicative that do not convey present temporal reference, since there are other pragmatic expressions of proximity besides present temporal reference. Okay, let's turn now to consider how these issues impact our reading of the Greek New Testament. There are several ways in which understanding verbal aspect may shape our reading of the Greek text. First, it will correct certain mistakes that are commonly made in interpretation. For example, 
The claim that the aorist indicative in Romans 5 verse 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died, apethanen, for the ungodly, proves the once-off nature of Christ's death. That view is mistaken. The aorist does not prove the punctilia nature of Christ's death since it conveys a summary of the event from an external perspective. A similar mistake has been made concerning the aorist imperative in John 17, verse 17. Sanctify, agiason, them by the truth. Your word is truth. Claiming that the aorist proves that sanctification is an instantaneous event. Well, we all know that's not true. But the perfective aspect of the aorist imperative conveys a specific command, not an instantaneous one. And there are many other such examples. Second, several positive insights into Greek text are possible through a competent understanding of aspect. Apart from the obvious importance of reading each aorist as perfective in aspect, each present as imperfective, and so forth, we will focus on two major advances. One is the interaction between aspect and actionsat. The other is the way in which aspect is used to help structure narrative texts. While older approaches to Greek verbs focused on their type of action, their actionsat, aspect focuses on the viewpoint through which each action is portrayed. However, it's still useful to reflect on the nature of each action. Aspect does not operate alone within a text, but interacts with lexeme and context to create actionsat expressions or implicatures. For instance, an aorist is not, in and of itself, punctiliar in nature, but its perfective aspect may combine with a punctiliar lexeme to create a punctiliar actionsat. In other words, some aorists may be punctiliar in function, even though aorists are not punctiliar in their semantic nature. Every aspect is capable of expressing a variety of functions within context, depending on the pragmatic features at work in any given text. Alongside punctiliar action sat, the perfective aspect of the aorist can express summary, ingressive, and nomic action sat, depending on the lexeme used and the context. The aorist indicative can also express present and even future temporal reference. The imperfective aspect of the present indicative is able to express progressive, stative, iterative, and nomic action sartan, depending on lexeme and context. It, is also, it also often conveys past temporal reference as the so-called historical present. The imperfective aspect of the perfect indicative is able to express stative and arguably progressive action sartan, depending on lexeme and context, and can be used in parallel to the historical present as an historical perfect, referring to a simple past action. Similar patterns of usage apply to the imperfect, pluperfect, and future tense forms. The chief advantage of relating aspect to actionsart through such predictable patterns is that the exegesis of Greek verbs may be approached with a more objective methodology than older attempts. Instead of the somewhat subjective intuition of the interpreters of yesteryear, this approach relies on recognizing established patterns of aspect actionsart interactions and allows scrutiny of the process and its results. The study of aspect offers a superior methodology for exegesis. Aspect also functions in a predictable manner within narrative texts. This can be useful to observe uh, 
uh, how larger units of narrative text are constructed and how they function. <clears throat> the most fundamental distinction within narrative is between narrative proper and discourse. That is, event-based story versus reported speech or thought. Within narrative proper, the event-based story, we find mainline and offline strands. Mainline strands include sequential events that outline the development of the story, while offline strands supplement the mainline by offering commentary, explanation, and background for the narrative events. While these distinctions are fairly universal within narrative texts in any language, Greek, uh, Greek maps such narrative strands through the use of its indicative verbs. In general, mainline material is conveyed by the use of the aorist indicative, since its perfective aspect is especially suited to outlining narrative events. Offline material is generally conveyed by imperfect and pluperfect indicatives, since their imperfective aspect and remoteness <clears throat> is suited to commentary, explanation, and background information. Discourse material is dominated by present and perfect indicatives, since their imperfective aspect and proximity is suited to the reporting of speech and thought. Recognizing these patterns within narrative texts allows us to account for a key reason why certain tense forms are used. There are spectral nature functions to structure and shape narrative material so that it can convey its various types of information in an effective manner. This helps us to understand the function of aspect as well as the inner workings of narrative. In conclusion... Aspect and tense remain controversial topics in Greek research today, but many insights have already been gained from the discussions and debates concerning them. While some confusion may still exist for budding students and experienced teachers alike, the worst mistake would be to remain disengaged from the issues. Many, if not most, areas of scholarship exist in a state of flux with their own significant debates and differences of scholarly opinion. But this does not mean that students ought to avoid them while teachers ignore them. The study of Greek verbal aspect is here to stay, which means that Greek verbs simply must be understood in light of it. The application of aspectual insights presents its own challenges, but there are an increasing number of tools to aid in this endeavor. The beginner may start with the foundational insight that verbs convey actions through viewpoint. Some an external viewpoint, others an internal viewpoint. Temporal considerations are secondary to this important point. Understanding the interaction between aspect, lexeme and context is the next step toward careful exegesis. And finally, consideration of viewpoint enables the assessment of verbal function in wider units of text. Thank you.